the podcast where we review books. Hello and welcome to Forever Young Adult, a book podcast where I, Kira, and usually Aoife, read and discuss young adult fiction. But this week we have a special surprise because Aoife is not here and instead I have replaced her with my friend Andrew. Where is here, Kira? Here is the podcast, here is the recording, but also here is Rome. In a much more real and specific sense, the geographic location is Rome. Uh, Because I have come to visit my good friend Andrew, who is a secondary school teacher, and he reads lots and lots of fiction, and I asked him if he would like to do a guest spot, um, and he said that he would love to. So I've got him on to talk about a book, which is not a young adult book, but is... Is young adult suitable? First off. He has... First off. I'm very grateful to be here. <laughs> so thank you very much, Kira. And also, I think I have the blessing of Eva. So you do. Thank you very much, Eva. And you are also welcome to come to Rome at any stage if you'd like. It's a beautiful city. The Italians make incredible food, which they will not serve to me. But apart from that, it's fine. Yeah. It's fine. Andrew has been starving in Rome for the last nine months. It's not been working out so well. Moving on from that... <laughs> I would make the case that this book is absolutely a book available to young adults. And while perhaps could also be enjoyed by adults, there's no content in there that would not be appreciated by someone um, who is, especially in that romantic bloom from the mid-teens onwards, where you're thinking about not just love, but romance. Mm -hmm. I think this book appeals to romantics. And I think that's a demographic usually occupied by young adults. Yes, I agree. It's that there is what I mean when I'm like it's young adult as opposed to adult is mostly that like there is a genre, genre, there's a genre, and there's a genre now these days that is just catering specifically as uh, young people aged between like fourteen and twenty, and the book that you're going to tell talk to me about is not aimed at those people. It is aimed at adults. I would say that a hallmark of. <laughs> A home. I like. I like to fight. Right. I like to fight. You knew that when you asked me. I, okay. I'm just gonna say that a hallmark of the, of the genre of young adult yeah. is that you have dystopias, mm-hmm. and this book not only has one dystopia, but actually has two dystopias. Okay. The, the entire premise like, is that you're caught between two different futures, and I think that again is something that would appeal specifically to those of us in the audience who have lots of possible futures, most namely. Those who aren't withered and husk-like, like myself. Oh my god. So the book that we're going reading... A young adult book, you say. ...is called This Is How You Lose the Time War by Emile El Mortar and Max Goldstone. So this book has two authors, which is similar to a book that Aoife and I did uh, previously, which was Lillian Dash's book of dares. And in that one, the two authors didn't make a plan. They were like, we have a character each, and then they wrote a chapter. But in this one, they set out an outline at the stars. But then they were like free reign with their own characters. And one of them wrote b- red, and the other wrote blue. And here now, we have exhausted my knowledge, and I'm probably going to hand over to Andrew to tell us about this book that he really liked and wanted to talk to the world about. I really like this book. I'd like to talk to the entire world, Erby et Orby, to the the city and the world, and I'm not conceited whatsoever. (laughs) No comparisons to the Pope here. 
except for my stunning chin. You need to face this way where the mic is. Hello, Mike. Pleasure to meet you. I Thank think you. the entire point of this book is it's wonderfully centrist. Okay. You like your political takes moderate. This book is there, mm-hmm. but in a very interesting way. Uh, it describes two possible futures. One possible future is the mechanical organization of clockwork where the entire universe has been categorized and formulated and broken down into spreadsheets and everything is known and quantified. Mm-hmm. And that is the world of Blue, who lives in the future of that time screen, that time lapse, that timeline. And the other world is the world of a mesh of chaos, mm-hmm. where you have the unrepentant bloom of the gardens and you have the growth of nature and you have nothing but wilderness scattered throughout a galaxy spanning aeons. And that is the world of Blue. That's the future that Blue lives in. Mm-hmm. However, in case you haven't noticed, these two futures are mutually exclusive. You can only have one. And so they must fight each other? And so they must fight each and other. And this is the time war? This is the time war. This is the eponymous time war which mm-hmm. the book is based on. So Blue, Red and Blue are respectively agents of the technocracy and the garden who get sent back through time to not just time one linear strand, but multiple mm-hmm. different universes. The goal isn't just to win one universe worth of worlds, it's to win as many universes as possible, eradicating the other group in such a way that there is no likelihood the universe will ever end up in any state that is not your preferred style of universe. And to do this, they might, for example, um, buy somebody a dress here, okay. assassinate an assassin there, um, coordinate the downing of a spaceship, organize a galactic military war. It's guns. So they are jumping between universes, changing courses of events so that their team wins. Exactly. But then as they do that, the other team is coming in behind them to undo their their change? Well, you have to imagine there's an infinite number of universes. So yes. The, the job's never fully done. But the goal is to get re- reach a balance. They don't exactly dwell on this. It's not the point of the story necessarily. Okay. But the goal is to reach like a, a tipping point where your group win almost every single time. Okay. And they refer to universes as strands. And they talk about how, for example, Atlas appears across, Atlantis appears across almost every single strand. And how sometimes they hate Atlantis because it represents... Um, this beautiful surge forward of human potential that fundamentally goes nowhere most of the time. In some mm-hmm. strands, of course, it leads to geometry and um, or to like star maps and all kinds of things that we take for granted, like internal combustion engines. But the most times they ever see Atlantis, they only ever see Atlantis when it dies. And the death of Atlantis is just such a, a horrible experience that they can't enjoy it. And who is they? They, they? Is they the two narrators? They is the two narrators. So the story starts in the aftermath of the Galactic Battle where Red feels as though she's won. Mm-hmm. And it's actually quite important that it's she. Um, some of the words they use to describe them are beautiful in their, beautiful in their form- formulation, but specifically feminine. Um, this will be a queer love story. And I think it's important that they emphasize their femininity in very specific ways right mm-hmm. red refers to how red refers to how her um armor folds into her body like rose petals at dusk okay and i think that captures a type of energy that would not be captured if this was two men taunting each other in uh look how much better i am than you kind of way yeah it's almost playful so Red has thinks she's won and she uncovers a letter. Mm-hmm. And the letter details exactly how actually she's lost. Yes, 
she's won a temporary battle, but the wider scheme of this entire universe now tilts towards the garden because that's what Blue engineered. And Blue uses the title. She says, now my words are inside your head. Now you will be forever tormented with the idea that I've slipped something into your mind. Your commander will never fully trust you if they realise it and you will have to keep my letter secret from them to not be suspected. suspected. And that means you are keeping something from your commander, which in turn makes you worthy of being suspected. This is how we win the time war. Ah. And I think that was a stunning piece of... I think they refer to it as stoichiometric terrorism in today's world. It's the idea that you can gradually cause bad things to happen by changing the atmosphere just a little bit. Um, so, for example, if... I don't like know, changing the music? Again, like, for example, if you were to put on, I don't know, some, some version of Taylor Swift from the most recent album, mm-hmm. that would probably induce madness in me. Because... Her early stuff, absolutely marvellous, wonderful. The later stuff, we've discussed it. I can't believe that you've come here to my podcast to come at me. About your love of recent, late Taylor Swift. At my late enjoyment of Taylor Swift because I liked her latest album. You know, there's nothing synthetic about me, unlike, you know, the entire musical content of the last... I, okay. Yeah, you know. I will not have you come here. I am. I'm and here. come for Taylor Swift. I am. Because she's problematic and we don't stand her, but we do stand the music. I don't mind her personally. She obviously has issues, but I think the, the fundamental thing is that incredibly talented musician. Mm. The last album was a lot. So anyway. This it was a lot a, for you. This is a book. But tell me more about the time war. So we start with them, one of them receiving the letter and then how did they get another letter back? Well, that's actually kind of the way the story is framed. So you have one chapter of a character doing an action and perhaps attempting some kind of goal. Mm -hmm. It's never linear. It's not going one action, one action, one action, one action, returning back and forth. There might be weeks or months or centuries or millennia in between letters. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or there might be, for example, opening up a letter in Rome and then a couple of... Then in the second to third chapter later on, they'll be opening up a letter somewhere else in like ancient Greece further back, 3,000 mm-hmm. years. Um, it's not a linear conception of time so much as it's an explanation of how there's a thread. And the thread is they will find ways to pass messages in incredibly interesting ways. So they might encode them in a seed and the seed blooms inside your mind when you eat it. They might uh, translate the letter you want to write to someone you love into feathers and then slowly let the th- like let the goose you've grown up this entire life like bloom into this young adult goose and then send it to the person you love they might find them in the swirl of a teacup where you destroy each paragraph by swirling milk into the tea this sounds very complicated as message sending and like it would likely miss well remember they are effectively betraying their own existence because if red succeeds in what they want ostensibly to win yeah blue can't ever exist and if blue succeeds then red can't exist and they will be executed as traitors as they were seen as deferring from the goal so they have to play things very carefully and you do gradually pick up the fact that somebody is watching them someone is pursuing them all the way through the story um seeking out the remnants of the letters that get left behind when they've left i think The problem here is that I have to describe the story to you. Mm -hmm. I have to capture the narrative. But the narrative is not the book. And it's not why people are going to love this book. It's not why young adults are going to gravitate towards this book clearly written for the genre. Yeah. So what are the themes of it then? If it's it's difficult to describe narratively, then like what are the greater themes? Like what do you want to discuss about it? So the things that I think... (laughs) (laughs) The things I want to say I think are primarily two main things Mm -hmm. Uh, 
there's this idea of phonoaesthetics. So phonoaesthetics is when a word, regardless of its meaning, is absolutely beautiful to you when you encounter it. Mm-hmm. And I think this entire book is predicated on the idea of phonoaesthetics. It's about creating these incredibly lyrical, musical, sweeping expressions of love. When she when Blue writes to Red, she doesn't call her Red, she calls her Cochineal. Um, when Red writes to Blue, she doesn't call her Blue, she calls her 000FF, which is the Pantene colour scale, gives you a very dark shade of blue. Um, you have things along the lines like, In order to recall my words, then you must seek my presence in your thoughts, tangled among them like sunlight and water. This book traffics in extraordinarily gorgeous iconography and just passes it across to you. At one point later on in the story, um, Red, realising that she's in over her head, realising that she's actually fallen in love with Blue, talks about how she tries to stop looking for her. But everywhere in the world, there's so much Blue in the world. Bismuth burns Blue, and cerium, germanium, and arsenic. I pour you into things. That's really pretty. I think... I I just see you everywhere. But mm. in literal colour. And I think even the manner when you think about exterium is incredibly dangerous and arsenic, arsenic is obviously poisonous and she recognises that her capacity for control she's a machine effectively. She was mm-hmm. grown as a machine and her capacity for control is slipping away from her So, and that's a fundamental part of her identity. Um, when Blue describes Red she describes this meticulous planner who brings some depth to the machine side the machine side is like full of running fast hit them all hit every universe you can hit as many as you can doesn't matter if you win or lose because if you hit everywhere eventually this other side will make a mistake whereas the guardians sell themselves a much more considerate slow moving we only fight when we are 98% going to win and I think when Red starts to realise how deeply she's fallen in love with Blue Mm -hmm. then she starts critically losing sense of herself in that regard as we all do when we fall in love with people um you have to work really hard to establish the boundaries of identity again and she starts seeing not just blue as an expression of color but as an expression of life of a garden of the willful chaos that makes life worth living and it's very powerful to read the story and hear about that Mm -hmm. the second idea so the first idea was fun aesthetics the second idea expresses is how we are changed by other people and how we are only so consciously aware of that so spoiler so this Mm -hmm. is not not spoiler for this book but if our readers have read uh, Nemesis by Arthur Christie which is the last Hercule Poirot story okay and it's spoiler alert again Mm -hmm. for a story which is ancient Uh, it's the story in which Hercule Poirot dies and when he died he's the only fictional character to ever have a New York Times obituary Yes, I remember that. Yeah, because yeah. when Sherlock Holmes died, all the men of London wore black uh, armbands. But when Hercule Poirot died, they gave him a New York Times obituary. And in the story, he realises what's happening is that a man at the hotel he's staying at is inducing other people to commit murder. Mm-hmm. He's not poisoning people or knifing them himself, but he's gradually sowing the seeds of... Discord. Uh, of discord. He's telling someone that he's going to lose his wife. He's going to tell someone he's going to murder somebody else. And Hercule realizes that within the law, there's nothing he can do to stop this guy. If he follows the law, he's perfectly innocent. It's basically uh, Iago in Othello. Mm. And as a result, Mr. Poirot decides to murder this man. And he kills him stone dead. Yeah. And everything gradually goes back to normal. But Hercule never finds out because horrified at what he's done, he goes to his chair, places himself very far away from his medication, and just waits for his heart to naturally stop beating. Okay. And that's how Hercule dies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I consider Duran that refers to the idea we see today with stoichiometric terrorism where you see far right figures gradually l- layering text upon text upon text where the subtext build up until someone 
outright comes out and says the euphemism they've been growing in the dark for centuries Mm -hmm. because they've created enough of a groundwork for it to be said i think that this book captures the idea of what it's like to feel the people around you induce within you a sense of change that you cannot quite fathom and you cannot quite appreciate until you are pushed to make a decision and in that moment of decision you realize it, you the person making that decision is not the person who was making would have been making it two years uh, i've obviously painted a very horrifying example of that in both the murder with Poirot <laughs> and obviously with the terrorism yeah. but i would say that we all are we all experience this on a personal every so you if you're listening to this you can probably imagine what it feels like to grow in love mm-hmm. um like what bell hook says that in order to prove that you love someone you need to be able to experience growth on their behalf so i think that this book captures what it feels like to be in love and to change for somebody else and that's why our, our listeners should go read it that's one of the reasons why our, our listeners should go read it. the other one being of course the like the, the the language use is stunning. Yeah, you have yeah you've done a few quotes and they're all super beautiful and just really evocative. I think I'm also just a sucker for taunting. I'm a sucker for like the trope of two rivals against each other. Like sure, Akira will know my my growing up like genre favorite favorite trope was <laughs> Holmes Moriarty style rivals. Yeah. This is what lie back and lose Sherlock. Yeah, Andrew Scott I, intoning. Pretty I don't much. think I know anyone who refers to like people as their arch nemesis as much as you. I'm bitterly disappointed with the standard of arch nemesis <laughs> I've accumulated at the tender age of twenty five. Um, it is absolutely marvelous to read this book, but I think the most impressive part is when the very first letter, when Blue mm-hmm. talks about it to Red. Uh, how you showed up and then my margins vanished every move i'd made by rote i'd bring myself to fully you brought some depth to your side speed some staying power and i found myself working at capacity again you invigorated your shift's war effort and in doing so invigorated me please find my gratitude all around you imagine receiving that after you just lost the battle you thought you'd won please find my gratitude for who you are all around you in the wreckage i think that's astounding and also just I really enjoy the concept of being like you were a good nemesis but and you upped my your game was good so I had to up mine and just hello Mm. Mm. thank thank you thank you for playing you made me better and now I'm better than you and as a result I no longer need you so uh, you're more than welcome to continue trying as best you'd like I will engage with you but I have beaten you but you have been beaten I think that's Amazing. marvelous. Um, as the book goes on, it becomes more and more obvious how they've fallen deeply in love with each other and how richly they experience, they describe the experience even of, of eating honeyed bread, mm-hmm. of eating of the sensation of taste, of the sensation of touch, how they explore what it means to smell fragrance, how at one stage, I believe Blue conceals a message in tea and then Red goes back brings that tea back to a perfumery in paris somewhere maybe it was in an, uh it might be in a, in a middle east country i can't entirely be certain it was i think it was a, a place yeah. that doesn't exist in our earth and she has the perfumery construct the scent of the tea from the remnants of the petals that were left over okay. and then uses that perfume on the letter she sends back and it's so extra but though when they start doing this first so when they start doing this first is it so that it's in a taunting way and then it keeps going like but like is it taunting for longer than the first letter like do, do they actually start out at the start as being like 
actual enemies who are taunting each other and just in the war and like the mind games of that and then it slowly transitions to lovers or and I know that I don't think they meet do they? They do by the end. They do by the end and like to lovers it's a slow it's a slow, slow burn. So as is a, it a slow burn? A slow burn rivals to lovers. Is, it's, yes it's that, is it that? the epitome of slow burn rivals to lovers and I think that's important because I think we can all we've all we if you're listening to this podcast we've all read terrible slow burn fic we've all read slow burn where they're almost immediately lovers having been rivals less than 20 centuries ago no time for that nonsense whatsoever it evolves so gracefully from i am getting inside your mind oh you've gotten inside my mind well the method in which i deliver this letter is going to destroy one of your finest plans and the monkey you had planned who would live in isolated poverty and take care of people i taught him to love i sent him off with someone who adored him and the manner in which you've read this letter by choosing to read this letter by being so drunk on reading my my taunts you've actually destroyed your only chance of reaching him so well done and then it graduates from the physical destruction to almost uh you came very close that time i give you that you you almost got me but unfortunately you see i admire your work as a craftsman admires another craftsman's work and i'm letting you know that and then it's oh you averted an assassin for me well i guess we have something of a, a business relationship now don't we we have i couldn't be without you sort of crowley azira fail from good omens mm. and then it's love that's i really like that mm. i do like that concept and the working towards us that is nice. I think if it was too quick, it would. Yeah, I like. Mm. My main question was like, how quick is this? Because uh, I do love the slow burn. I need the slow burn. Should I ruin the denouement of the story, or is that something we leave secret in the podcast? Um, you can. Sometimes we do the endings, and sometimes we're like, we just get vague to. We just get vaguer as we approach the the third act. So I think the inevitable happens and if you're reading this book with a sense of anxiety and trepidation about the shadowy organizations watching over their shoulder you can imagine what it might feel like as it sooner becomes impossible to hide everything eventually because they are by the time they're in love they are like actually traitors to each other's sides they are full-on like it begins with them working extraordinarily hard to, to be the other person and then it's them working extraordinarily hard to prove themselves to the other person and then it's working them working extraordinarily hard so that they don't give away the fact that they don't really want to win anymore. Yes, and, because that would cause the erasure of the other person. And then one of them is ordered to assassinate the other. Mm. And mm. then when they fail... I love being ordered to assassinate my girlfriend. I mean, honestly, Lonnie, I think in a sort of like a Mr. and Mrs. Smith... I think Smith, it's a queer energy. Like in a Mr. and Mrs. Smith type thing? Yeah. Like just barreling through the house with rocket launchers. A movie I was thrown out of at the tender age of eight. Why on earth were you in Mr. and Mrs. Smith aged eight? Well, I was I was under the impression I was going to see Batman Begins. I was quite a bully child. And I thought, hey, Batman Begins, I could win this one, you know? I, and it started off really good. I, yeah. I told a joke. I was like, the guy goes into, walks into a zoo, he sees one dog, he says, hey, this is a shit zoo. And I'm like, ha ha! <laughs> and to a, to a, as an eight-year-old, to other kids a little bit older than me, mm-hmm. that's like a king-making joke because okay. I used a bad word. Right? Ah. I used a bad word in there. But I was raised extraordinarily Catholic. I don't know if you've ever seen the seminal classic Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I have. You have. You might remember in the opening scene that there is a scene of provocative dancing. Yes, there is. There is. It stole poor Brad Pitt's attention mm-hmm. away from away from Rachel. Uh, Jennifer Aniston. Jennifer Aniston. And onto Queen of the Night, as she's known, Angelina Jolie. 
Is she known as that? No. <laughs> but it's starting. And, and deeply Catholic eight-year-old me was thinking to myself, well, this is not any way to carry on whatsoever. They're dancing. I was like a young denizen of the town footloose. But why the, were you allowed into that movie at age days? I don't know if you've noticed, but I like to talk. I have a sort of charming way about me sometimes. But the, who sold you that ticket? I didn't get his name. I just know the man had a reckless disregard for the minds of the youth. Isn't that like a 15? Well, this is the thing. Then they go to the therapist immediately afterwards. Yes, and they the marriage counselling. Uh, the marriage counsellor. And Brad Pitt says, we've not had sex recently. And that was it. Mm-hmm. I tapped out of the movie. But you didn't get thrown out. You no. left. Well, here's the thing. I then went outside, demanded my money back. They realised they'd let an eight-year-old into a 12s <laughs> movie. And immediately gave me my money back. So they, like, I could no longer prove I'd been in there. And some of the other people came out with me and they said, yeah. what are you doing now, Andrew? And I said, well, you know, I, I don't like the movie, guys. I'm going out. And I had the time of my life. I got Jetty Babies. I got Top Trump cards. I sat cross-legged in a bookshop reading for a little bit. Then I was picked up by the security guards and carried out of the bookshop and into the security guard office. Yeah, because you were an unaccompanied eight-year-old. I was an unaccompanied... I, I feel like that was not a good enough reason, but... I respect it. I mean, legally it is. Go on. Me and the law, we differ. (laughs) And I was driven home in shame while all the other students who had come out of the cinema to go find me stared at me angry for having ruined the birthday party. So I was thrown out of that movie. No, that's not what thrown out of a movie means. You were removed from a bookshop. I was removed from a bookshop because I was... Okay, I was you th- I was thrown out of the left. movie by its content, which is not appropriate for an eight-year-old. I agree, but th- that to begin with was not your fault, and balls on you for going and looking for your money back at Ace. I was a very I, I knew my worth. I knew my I the always knew my worth. The actual people that I blame in this story is your parents at the beginning for dropping you off to see Mr. and Mrs. Smith. They didn't think it was Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I was told it was Batman Begins. That's not an appropriate movie for an eight-year-old but if you'd met me aged eight you think i could handle batman begins like i had i had that much general awareness gratuitous mentions of dancing not my scene the batman like the goddamn batman i could do that we have diverged from the book i don't know how we got onto this side note i know it involved oh we do it was lovers fighting each other like in mr and mrs smith that was such an antidote <laughs> thank you for being able to pull us back anytime <laughs> But that's the energy of this book. This this book. Are you telling me that this is this is a this is Doctor Who meets Mr. and Mrs. Smith? I'm inclined to say that this is Holmes and Mario Holmes and Moriarty on the Reichenbach Falls. Okay. Meets Russell T Davies Doctor Who. Oh, the worst Doctor Who. I need you to stop. <laughs> I've lived in a world where Stephen Moffat got to ruin the things I love. Sorry, sorry, sorry. You're right. You're right. I made a mistake. It is Moffat. Moffat is the bad. Moffat is the bad. He is the worst and we do not believe in him. Though he is very good at casting Andrew Scott in his work. He is very good at casting Andrew Scott. Do you have anything else to tell us about this book, Andrew? I think this book, when properly consumed, is is a meditation on the nature of love what it can do and what it can't do and what it means to live a life according to the principles of love conquers all as opposed to simply the vague platitude love conquers all and 
That's an astounding thing to witness. And I'd encourage anyone to read it who enjoys poetry. Very good. Thank you very much for talking to us about This Is How You Lose the Time War. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, which is very different to our regular episodes, um, please listen to our other episodes and also like and subscribe. Um, you can follow us on like all the, uh, wherever you listen to us, you can follow us. Um, also, we've got social media. Um, we're on Instagram at Forever YA Pod. We're on Twitter, Forever Young Adult. Um, and uh, give us some money on Patreon. We'll talk to you again in two weeks. Bye. You have to say bye with me. Goodbye. No, no, you have to do it like bye. I've said it already once. I can't say it again. Forever Young Adults. A good podcast where we Bye.